Hello, my dearest peace lovers and peacemakers. Welcome to our podcast. Today is the fifth Tuesday of March. It's noon Pacific Standard Time, and we are live streaming our show from Seattle. You're listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring some of the finest peaceful bridge makers in the world. So we are focusing on Saudi Arabia today, a country full of mystery, exoticism, and corruption. Saudi Arabia is notoriously famous for oppressing women, killing political opponents, controlling oil prices, forcing Westerners to stay quiet in order to preserve Saudi investment in their respective countries, and making us believe that the kingdom is one of the most important countries among Muslims. And in fact, the last one is actually true. Saudi Arabia is one of the most important countries among Muslims. One of the main reasons is that if Islam stands on five pillars, a Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, Islam's holiest city located in Saudi Arabia, is one of the five pillars. Hajj is one of the five five pillars in the uh, Islamic and Muslim ideology. The other four are believe in God, to perform daily prayers, to pay alms and zakat, and to do fasting during the holy month of Ramadan. In fact, we are approaching the holy month of Ramadan, and we have a host of programs for you during this period. Here we are exploring why Saudi Arabia is an important state and what we can learn about this country. Suzanne Kobel, she is an award-winning foreign correspondent for the German news magazine Der Spiegel. In her latest book, Behind the Kingdom's Veil, Inside the New Saudi Arabia Under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, she unfolds complicated stories of tribalism and conflict that a 10-year-old can understand. And in fact, I put this statement into practice. With my 10-year-old, we read a few passages in the book and we were able to discuss the matters was explained in the book. We really have a very lively uh, discussion with my daughter. Behind the Kingdom's Veil is a book full of tales of stories of high-profile Saudi monarchs, ultra-conservative Wahhabi preachers, common people on the streets, female friends, oppositionists, Jamal Khashoggi's murder, and the kingdom's dilemma to take its nation out of the state of traditionalism to the modernism. As a military and foreign correspondent, I'm going to bring Suzanne to our screen. Hello, Suzanne. Hello, Sarah. Lovely to see you. Thank Absolutely. you for being it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Suzanne Kobel is a military foreign correspondent, and she has covered wars in the Balkans, Central Asia, and the Middle East. To write this book, she lived in Riyadh and traveled throughout the Saudi Arabia. In fact, when you read the book, there are passages in the book that you see that where exactly she is traveling on the map of Saudi Arabia. She witnessed firsthand 
the inner workings of mysterious kingdom and ultimately like true journalist she wrote what she saw the book is organized in a portion size bite uh, for us to read and to understand welcome to peace mindedly suzanne so my first question is so in the book you explain basically we are talking about a male dominant country and then i was just so enamored and so excited to see that you as a female foreign correspondent can basically go to many of the gatherings and to many of the men gatherings so i wonder how, wh why they were welcoming a foreign uh, european correspondent within their gatherings uh, thank you for the question sarah i mean certainly it sounds a little bit odd but it's 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 not as complicated as you as you might think i mean all these all these gentlemen traveled or not all but many of them traveled the world already they are fully in the picture that our world functions completely different uh, than than theirs and we have different traditions than theirs and um, they are also curious i mean what 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 is this person uh, doing here what is her task what 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 does she aim for um, and it's also i think it's also a tradition that you welcome foreigners to understand what is their what is their thinking? Maybe they have new thoughts. I mean, there have been discussions like, for instance, there are these um, istrahas, they call it, when men meet in the desert in the evenings to play cards and to exchange uh, uh, views. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a segregated society still. So men and women have their circles, their, their entertainments, and it's separated from each other. So men spend their evenings together. So that was indeed, um, I would say, a privilege uh, to join and to, to figure out how they spent their time among each other. So, and I know from some that it was, uh, sometimes it was a, po a point of discussion, should we allow that? they did. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, they did. I mean, we are talking about a very generous, hospitable culture. I know that in Iran, in Turkey, in many nations in the Middle East, they are very hospitable. And then maybe they really wanted to boast their hospitality to a beautiful European uh, woman in their gatherings, don't they? I mean, I, I can absolutely, I can absolutely support that the generosity and the hospitality is amazing and um, i mean we come from different planets you might think in the first place but most of them just welcome you kindly and politics is not the first thing you would talk about i mean you would talk about where you're coming from what is your they actually are very keen to to introduce you to their lives. They are very keen to to make you understand why they are living as they live. Uh, in particular, when I remember in my uh, there is a there is a chapter where I'm visiting the city of Hale, and Hale is a city where you still find they are very proud of that they that they have uh, continued to keep up their Bedouin traditions and uh, which are extremely conservative but they are also in particular interested to 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 make you understand that this is this is a very interesting and rich culture and uh, hospitality and generosity is the core of it so there are tales about um 
generous people who gave away their last sheep or their last anything of, in the house just to trade it for a lovely story that a foreigner would tell them. So yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, I I remember. Uh, it's the Hatamatai in Persian uh, literature. It's a famous book that uh, he he was a very very generous man, and he traveled to this Bedouin exactly to hail this Bedouin location, and there was a, a chef a shepherd that just slaughtered the only goat he had. Actually, then, these, these Bedouins, these Bedouins um, were leading me to his grave and to the grave of his oh family. Oh my God! Yeah. Oh my God! You yeah. saw how time. Oh my God! Absolutely exciting. I, I in the first place because in the first place I didn't get it, but it's a grave, and you still have you still have stones in a, in a circle which uh, represent the family of this gentleman. And um, the story is famous throughout the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, the people are very proud of of these stories. Yes, yes, I remember exactly. We read this story, and then how the story really moves forward is how Tamatai invites this uh, shepherd to his uh, to his area, and then when he came over to his court, he just, I mean, day and night uh, slaughtering and having party day and night. So many other people just complained that what you are doing, are you out of your mind? He said that compared to what he did uh, to me, it's this is just nothing because he had only one goat and he slaughtered only the only living thing that he, I mean, the the live stream. And then whatever I do, it doesn't really match. So I am, you know, honestly, I, ju I just have a confession, Suzanne, that I thought Hadamita is a myth. And then when you say that actually went to his grave, now I, I can believe that this story is, was actually the right story, the true story. And I, this is one thing that I learned out of so many other things I learned out of, out of the book. So you're from Europe. You are from Germany. I wonder what are the, in your opinion, what are the major, um, major similarities and major differences between Germany and Saudi Arabia? Um, the major commonalities are that we are all people with the with the same aims in in life to achieve. I mean, we all want to live in peace. We all want to live good. We all live, want to have a kind of freedom or liberties in our lives and uh, and we we want to improve so that's the commonalities in a segregated society things are very different equality between the sexes is not is not really engraved in that society you can say first of all you certainly have easier access to to men because they are all over and everywhere. Whoever, yes, whoever you, whoever, whoever you deal with in the first place is actually a man. And then there is this complete different world of women. And the women's world is very insider world and extremely interesting. I mean, they have their leverages, I would say, if they belong to a good family, a, a, a well-functioning family. So they do have their means of influence, but, but, but certainly not in the sense as we are thriving for, let's say, 
an independent life. It's a, it's a, it's a life which is completely dependent of somebody who has to take care of you. And uh, that looks a bit weird to us, but for some, it's absolutely what they, what they want. I think that's changing very much right now because um, politically it's what they wish. They wish to change the society to, to really throw it in as, as quick, as fast as possible in modernity, which is something nobody has expected five or six or seven years ago. It you, was are leading, you are leading us to my two follow-up questions. The one question is on the screen. So you claim that uh, many laws have changed, many men have not. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. So many, many laws have changed indeed. I mean, mm -hmm. like six years ago, women didn't drive. Women didn't really leave the house without being controlled by men. I mean, you, you, you the, 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 the man in the house had to decide whether you can, whether the driver is available or not for you. He also decided whether it's allowed to be to be in a car alone with a driver, let's say from Pakistan or from Philippines or another country, which is also was also a question which which could be raised whether this is appropriate, yeah, or whether it's haram, means sinful, and um, so that had has completely changed. Once you have the means, one, I mean, my friends, <laughs> also my male friends their wives are driving wherever they wish and they do not even tell them where to go. I mean, that's... So there is a complete new negotiation between the sexes now. I mean, many men are released from their duties to uh, to drive their, their wives uh, everywhere they wish, which they had to. Others feel that they lose uh, control. Then the Saudi society was kept in a quite lux not not luxury but but well off it was a well off society this is this is not improving really right now it's actually increasing because they don't have uh, the jobs for the young generation that means uh, in numbers so you have a lot of saudis young saudis that finished university and don't really have a perspective in their in their in their career because the jobs they wish are not available, and what I what I see is that uh, the income of women now becomes not something you would wish for, but it's definitely needed for many households. Many families need a second income now. So the, the change of the society is something which is happening not because women struggle for liberties or, or want to have more freedom. It's, it's actually a necessity. And uh, so it's both. But at the same time, it's, it's an ongoing negotiation between men and women. And so coming from coming mm -hmm. from a hierarchy. So very, uh, very quick analogy I can give about what's actually in, happening in Saudi Arabia. I can give analogy of Iran and Turkey back in 1922 and 1926. Ataturk and at the same time Reza Shah really forced, forced the nation go out of traditionalism and be more westernized. And it was lots of backlash. Like for the first time Ataturk had his wife Life, uh, sit by him without scarf 
and Reza Shah did the same thing. But we didn't, I mean, the, um, according to many scholars that I interviewed, so they, they were saying that this kind of forceful coercion that takes the society out of this traditionalism to modernity didn't really happen in Saudi Arabia. And this uh, MBS is just doing this, I mean, otherwise you have to just fight with everyone. Fight, and, and he's fighting. He's fighting with um, uh, Wahhabi preachers. He's, he's fighting with so many of those people. I wonder, uh, we hear so much about Vision 2030. What is Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia? Vision 2030 is actually a program indeed to, to push the country into modernity. But actually, it's, it's mainly... It's so, certainly it's also a, a social uh, transformation program, but mainly it's an economic transformation program. That means that the, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, understood that oil is not the future any longer. He has about 20 years to change this economy, and it's a complete oil-dependent uh, country. So he needed to open the society if they don't want to get bankrupt in 20, 30 years. Uh, they need to transform the society. And that means to open the society to new uh, industries. And that means tourism. And tourism means you need to allow people to travel, to come from other countries. And then you have certainly tourists want to have amenities, which you need to provide uh, hotels. Uh, certainly you cannot keep up a segregated society. So so the social transformation comes with the with the with the economic changes. And it's just, it's, it's again, it's a necessity. And secondly, uh, tourism, uh, tourism is only one pillar of that. You also have uh, startups that music, entertainment, sports all these new industries shall attract tourists, but also their own people to, to, to stay in the country, not to travel outside, not to travel to Europe or to America to spend their money there. Actually, they want to attract their own people to spend money, and they also want to attract investors and tourists from outside. And the Crown Prince also wants to excite the youth to that they can more identify with their with, with his new era of the crown bridge with which most likely will will become king very soon mm -hmm. yes tourism we're talking about tourism saudi arabia because of its geopolitical geostrategic geostrate location has been the and because of in silk road has been the basically a mecca <laughs> mecca of pilgrimage because of mecca people are coming to saudi arabia but but uh, the nation tracks very particular kind of tourism and attracts all of the Muslims. But talking about attracting not only Muslims, but non-Muslims mm -hmm. and, and having this vision is somehow extraordinary. For uh, it's absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very bold and brave move. But at the, at the same time, he didn't really have a choice. You just mentioned before that there are a lot of people who are against it. I mean, there definitely are people who dislike that move and who would think that this is this is not this is not the right way to go about it. Who are those people who are against the, this kind of changes? They are especially the elderly people. Who, who who lived through 40 years of really strict rule of Salafism 
and who also uh, educated their children that way. And um, I met, and, and I'm also describing that in the book, that they talk not clear, it's more a religious conversation you, ha you would have. Nobody would criticize politics. That's not what Saudis do. They would not openly criticize the crown prince or the king. Definitely not. And it's also not something which can be recommended because critiques are, uh, are not facing, are not really facing a nice, a nice treatment. Definitely. And not. if you do, you may end up just, you know, as a deadly cost. Uh, it's a good segment to just very quickly mention Jamal Khashoggi. I understand the the environment. I, mean, I am from Iran. I, I performed within a totalitarian authority and uh, theocratic regime. I understand that there are, there are certain rules and certain red lines that you should never pass. Somehow, when we were talking, you were saying that Jamal Khashoggi is viewed by Crown Prince and other people as a traitor. Why, why would you say that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi was actually a part of the elite. He was somebody that served high-ranking princes, top-ranking uh, royal highnesses. And he was feeling quite safe. He was feeling that he was protected. And then when the new rulers came in, the people who protected him were stripped of their, their influence, of their, of their power, of their uh, financial means uh, partially so of their leverages in that society of their position in that in that uh, saudi family i mean their powerful position was was taken away from them so that was something he didn't i think he didn't um, expect and then he 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 didn't agree with what happened he didn't agree with the with the diminishing space of people who were of a different opinion. And when he left, and when he left the country, and he moved um, to the US, and he connected with influential media people, influential dip diplomats, he was considered as a, as a traitor. And he openly, he wasn't silent, he didn't just go away. He openly criticized Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the policy, um, his, his, his strategy. And that was something which which was also new i mean uh, not to i mean there are there are exiled uh, opposition uh, groups always have been and there was there was efforts to influence that but this level of threat is a new thing definitely and so wouldn't wouldn't you think that probably uh, a journalist would do that a journalist who is wants to do her his job is gonna just criticize authorities inside the country. Huh. Okay. No, no, the no, criticism no. is inside the country. I no, see. No, no, that's a question, Sarah. Sorry. Uh, can you repeat the question? Please? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, um, we say. So I, I'm wondering, wouldn't this be a journalist or a reporter's perhaps area? To, to criticize authority, to criticize government. So wouldn't we do that? Look, this is a kingdom. This is not a democracy. In Iran, they, they, they claim 
that this is a democracy it means that you have plenty of different voices and you can absolutely criticize that those voices cannot be raised uh but you can't you go to jail <laughs> you, you can't you get yeah red lines if you if you cross the red lines here the red line is this is an absolute monarchy and jamal koshoji was as i'm sure there are others who would think the same way but he was openly suggesting a change of of the system of uh, that he actually wanted to have a, a constitutional monarchy which is which is definitely a red line mm -hmm. and uh, and the opposite of what's happening right now so this is a kingdom this is not a democracy <laughs> and yes. uh, and 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 the consequence out of that is that you don't have freedom of speech yes you don't have freedom of speech what does saudi arabia gets right Actually, a lot of things the crown prince has started and began and are incredibly, truly incredibly brave and, and, and right. I mean, the, the, the modernization of the society is a necessity. Otherwise, the country will not make it and will go back to, to what it once was, most likely. I mean, which was a very poor country. I mean, 60 years ago. 70 years ago, the people of Saudi Arabia were incredibly poor. And only thanks to the oil boom, they finally became, in only two or three decades, they became a very modern um, society with a lot of modern technology infrastructure. And uh, I mean, that's a miracle, actually, if you, if you, if you look at the, at the country itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When we come back uh, out of the break, I would love to learn about uh, Poetry Project and then I have follow-up questions. Please stay put with me. You are watching and listening Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers, finest peaceful bridge makers. We can claim that because we go through research, through anecdotes to find our writers and to find the guests that we believe are bringing meaningful conversations on the table about different subjects. We are live streaming our show on many social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, many. It's very easy to find us. Also, the same information goes on goldtoon.com. We do, we do this program and try to write about other nations within the peace journalism lens. G-O-L-T-U-N-E. Please check us out and submit to our, to our uh, newsletter. And of course, uh, feel free to submit your questions and comments here on the conversation that we are having at the moment. We did have a few people who were writing to us and, and asking questions. For next Tuesday, we will focus on the power of language and poetry in Iraq and Syria. Kevin Jones, author of The Dangers of Poetry, Culture, Politics, and Revolution in Iraq, and Thomas Levy, the who translated Rami Al-Ashaq's poem, My Heart Became a Bomb, will talk to us about the power and danger of poetry in the Middle East. 
Unlike the United States, poetry plays a significant role in the Middle East since straight-up uh, criticism of the government policies can lead to deadly outcomes. People in totalitarian regime learn to subtly convey meanings, hoping to address serious issues indirectly and perhaps via poetry. For this episode, we, we discuss how this practice takes place in Iraq and, and in Syria. Tuesday after, we will dedicate our first episode in Ramadan to food, and we will talk with two chefs and one cookbook producer about, about food and about food that refugees within their community prepare for their families. So basically, these, uh, these people are, and many other, not only, I mean, we are, we are featuring these three people, but them and many other are the contributors of a book Recipe for Refuge, Culinary Journeys to America is a cookbook by many refugees who benefited from Refugee Women Alliance, an organization based in Seattle. And we will talk to those women and about their experiences and their food stories. Back to this hour, we are talking to Suzanne Kobel, an award-winning military and foreign correspondent for Der Spiegel, an author of Behind the Kingdom's Veil, Inside the New Saudi Arabia Under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. It's a book that uh, I truly recommend. I was, you know, the book is um, organized in a small, small sections small sections and then it's very easy to just go through informational yet at the same time lots of interesting stories and Suzanne's interaction with people. I, I learned a great deal about Saudi Arabia but by just reading the book. So I do have Suzanne with me. Suzanne, tell me tell me the structure of the book. How come you decided that this is the kind of structure you would like to go for? Actually what I tried is I mean uh to 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 really there are so many think tankers who wrote or, or journalists who wrote books on Saudi Arabia now and about the politics and everything. You can certainly do that and you're well informed. But sometimes you want to you don't want to learn it the hard way all the time. Yeah. So what I did is I, I tried to identify the questions which we all have about Saudi Arabia. So why are we so closely connected with them? I mean, they have very contradictive uh, messages. Like on the one hand, they are close friends, closest, the, the, the most important ally of the Americans in the in the Middle East um, or in the Gulf region, let's say. And uh, at the same time, there is a fundamentalist religion which doesn't allow women to drive or to 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 go go uh, to leave the house uh, by their own will or a lot of things i never understood or for instance i mean i'm 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 reporting on wars and since 25 years now and uh, wherever i came wherever i went i came across um, groups that were funded by saudi arabia or they had religious leaders that were educated in saudi arabia so i was wondering where is this coming from? What is the political aim, and what is the what is the, the, the biggest strategy of Saudi Arabia? And uh, at the same time, they are our ally. And uh, how, how how does this work? How does this get together? So that's one thing. And I also wanted to discover the the women's the women's life. What do they think? What is their 
what is their lifestyle what what do they think about us and um and i had a, i had a great by the way i mean um we spoke about hospitality and first of all i really have to thank all these wonderful people who allowed me to enter their their lives their houses they invited me to their to their families to their to their um, farmhouses and uh, and i would not have expected that i really made quite some good friends there and we are still in touch and uh, so i had actually so what i did is i tried to find for instance if you tell if you tell this story about what is the connection between the west and saudi arabia our political and uh, strategic interests in theirs I was very lucky to come across uh, Prince Banda bin Prince Banda bin Sultan, who is the go-between uh, between the the kingdom, the Americans, and the rest of the world. Who knows everybody? Who has? I mean, he was the intelligence chief during the times of the of the Afghan war in the 80s, and he has organized the Mujahideen's uh, fight against the Soviet Union. And at the same time, now he again has organized the war against uh, Syria, I mean, which wasn't very successful, as we all know. But it, I mean, to, to just meet people like him who are really judge on, 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 on the political uh, aims, but just to identify these people are actually historic characters who were making history and uh, so that's one thing but at the same time i also met uh, people who were terrorists once joining osama bin laden and then now live as an electrician in jeddah again and founded a family and and is is uh, reflecting on his time and and he, how he then went to he was caught in pakistan and when Osama bin Laden uh, disappeared and um, he had joined him for 10 years and really until the last moment. And then he went to Guantanamo and uh, came back. And uh, there is a there is a kind of, a, <laughs> I would say, an anti-terrorism academy. So he, he went through that program and now is de-radicalized, is, is, is living a normal life again, but lost actually 15 years of his life. Uh, so to, to get into the to, to get to get into that to tell political issues with the people that are involved that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yes, political issues that were involved. You wanted to explain you, the the book is is written for like Europeans, uh, for Americans, for Westerners who really want to know about Saudi Arabia is number one best-selling book on Amazon. Who was your best female friend in, in, in your time? My best female friend was Noura. She yes. was actually, uh, she, I mean, she was, she's just an amazing woman. I mean, a, a young lady, a mother of three and um, now of three. I came across uh, her way when she was, she was, she was working for an international company and I was visiting this business man and she just very openly as in friendly came, came, came up to me and said, why you don't join me for a wedding or why we don't go to the desert. And uh, so she took me to all these incredible places where all the females or families meet or uh, to the birthday party of her daughter, which is, 
really an experience with whatever 29 29 nannies from the Philippines or 19, I think 19, don't want to exaggerate, and 19 drivers from the Philippines. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh. and, and, and it's incredible how they celebrate birthdays, which is actually a quite a new thing. So how do they deal with their children today? Or um, again, she took me, and, and this is, I, I like this, this, this um, uh, story in particular. She took me to a wedding. And I asked her, and and then asked her. I actually only brought one dress. Whether that would be appropriate, and she said, "Certainly, we are among us only." <laughs> and I came to that party, and I would not have believed. I I, I did not believe what I saw. I mean, like two hundred women, one more beautiful than the other, one more in 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 a more sexy dress uh wonderfully i mean super exciting hairstyles um uh, uh, makeup i mean incredible but not one single man around so what's going on here and uh, this goes on for 10 hours and only for 15 minutes the bride comes in walks through the walks through the through the to the hall sits on a throne for, for like 10 to 15 minutes and then disappears. The, the groom is never, is never seen. And you're wondering why all that effort? So again, one of the conclusions I could draw uh, of, of the many uh, insights I had, it's actually the marketplace to pick the, the wife for the, for the brother, for the son, for um, somebody who you look for uh, the the right person um, in the in in the family to 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 marry, so I mean that's that was really a lovely experience and um, a lot of new insights. Yes, uh, probably very unexpected. I I I I can I can relate with you. Okay, tell us about poetry project. The poetry project is something which is actually a result of all my travels and trips. But at the same time, it's actually the other way around. This time, not I went to other countries, but millions of people came to Germany to live here because they lost their they lost their livelihood, they lost their house because war have destroyed the wars have destroyed their life so they came from afghanistan they came from came from syria in millions as you know that was 2015 and i remembered very well because we really didn't know who they were what why did they come to us and 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 how did they come to us and uh, and uh, what is their story and many of them were just only 12 or 13 or 14 years old so People sent their children all alone the way, 7,000, 8,000 kilometers from Syria, from Afghanistan, from I don't know where. Syria is closer, I have to say, but Afghanistan, Iraq. So I started the Poetry Project. The Poetry Project is, uh, is actually a workshop that is, is asking these young people to write about what happened to them, what who sent them? What is the what is what is the the goal of their trip? What is really what what the what did the, what did they experience? And we did this with a small group in the first place because I learned. So Sarah, you come from 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 Iran originally. That in poetry, 
you don't know how you don't have you haven't you open your heart you really speak your mind from an emotional point of view and at the same time you don't have to reveal everything yeah but it's a it's a platform it's a it's a it's a it's an opportunity to communicate communicate uh, which I think is unique and it's extremely effective. We have asked these young boys and, and girls, like 13 to 15, 16, 17 year old, to perform their poems publicly. And even people were very, many were very disturbed by the masses of people coming to our country. But you could see people were touched. All of a sudden they could understand what's going on, what they went through, why they came. That they that they are just simply alone. They are just refugees that fled their homes because they don't have a place to live any longer uh, at that at, in, in in their country, or they don't have a have a have a future there, or they come with a task. Even that, but they are pretty innocent. Yeah? So we we did that. We have we have also uh, created this book. We spoke. We 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 finally. It's called I Wanted to Stay, I Left, and you would find it on the, our pages, thepoetryproject.de, thepoetryproject.de. So it's in Arabic, it's in Persian, it's in English and in German. So I think that's a, a great bridge. Uh, poetry is a wonderful way to share not only thoughts, but emotions, which, which actually come together <laughs> yes yes it's the music music of language and also musical words excellent when you were explaining the poetry project and you we, we were talking you said that this time they uh, i didn't go anywhere and they came to me and we started this project and then got me thinking that what happened why you decided to become a foreign correspondent and how come you travel so much Excellent question. Actually, the answer is pretty easy. I come from Germany. Germany had its last war, um, 19, ended its last war in 1945. Actually, I was, I was educated the way that we should never, ever enter a war again. So once we did, after the wall came down, after 89, 89 when Germany uh, reunited, Germany went back to become a normal country in that perspective. And uh, so I wanted to make sure that things go not completely wrong again. So this is how it began. And suddenly you, 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 you end in very complex situations. Like, I mean, the, the Balkan Wars, which have been my first uh, field of, of reporting in, in conflict zones, already showed that this is not only about uh, two or three ethnical groups that are uh, disliking or hating each other. They're also fueled of other inspirations and uh, religions and, and so, so on. So all of a sudden I was uh, in a war in Afghanistan after 9-11. So once you are in Afghanistan, the whole world is actually mingling and meddling in 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 this in this um, proxy wars, and uh, so it, it took me quite some time to figure out who is who is who who is doing what, who is wanting what, and I really wanted to understand and inform our people uh, where have we landed there, and and what should we do? What is the right thing to do? Which legacy do we do we leave in a country? And I mean, after 20, 20 years now, you can see where we are in Afghanistan. Actually, we are right, not we, but the Americans are now 
negotiating uh, with the Taliban to come back in a peaceful way. And I'm not so sure with this, whether this will be really happening. Yes. As a foreign correspondent, you have to work with people who understand the language. And uh, it's uh, so many translations and interpretations going on. How do you make sure that you actually understand the, the criteria you are dealing in your hand? I mean, experience helps. Uh-huh. <laughs> experience helps. And I'm checking back and forth. And I'm dealing with people of a long course of time. So we have a lot of discussions. Uh-huh. And I, I, I try to make sure as, as much as possible that I really understand what, what people mean. Certainly, it's not perfect. But I would say Spiegel magazine is still a magazine that provides you with enough time and and fact-checking and um, so resources that allow you to be quite accurate. And mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. I, I just want to ask also this question and then we go to the final segment. You are European and you are from Der Spiegel and you are speaking perhaps from authority. Do people get threatened by you like do they really want to talk to you hmm. i mean usually you are you get introduced by somebody uh-huh. and this and this person is is the trustworthy bridge and that's that's the easiest i mean but certainly you are traveling you always get in touch with new or you're you're always meeting new people so it's it's like everywhere in the world yeah you mm-hmm. need to find somebody that you are that i mean on the one hand, you need to convince somebody that they can trust you. And on the other hand, many people are not very experienced with with, with media. And uh, so it's actually on on us, on our side, to make sure that, um, that they would not get in trouble because we understand what it means that if their name is fully... Is, is fully mentioned or we should be the ones who should uh, protect them because many are many, because we live in social media times that uh, everybody's posting in pretty much anything and is not afraid of that but I think we can evaluate and we can assess better than many people who are just not experienced people if this is dangerous for them or not. Yes, yes, exactly. So I was a BBC fixer and a stringer, oftentimes just communicating with the foreign correspondents and connecting. And I had always two suggestions. The first suggestion is don't only let me to be your gatekeeper and try to get the information from other sources. And the second, just be careful because people who are talking to you sometimes really put their lives in danger. I mean, uh, security or intelligence services do come after them and you've been watched by the government and by the intelligence services to just be mindful. And you exactly mentioned those those two, two things. Please stay put with me. You are watching peace-mindedly a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers this hour we talked to suzanne cobell author of behind the kingdom's veil inside the new saudi arabia under crown prince mohammed bin salman the book is available on goldtoon.com on Amazon and many online bookstores. It's number one um, book in in Saudi Arabia and it's a worthwhile reading. Uh, it's a 
quick and as as i said i was just reading with my 10 year old my daughter and then we were just discussing the book so it's it's a fun and good read uh, at the end of every program, we ask our guests to close the program by sharing something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. And I know that Suzanne has a, a statement or something to, to share with us. Go ahead, Suzanne. Um, thank you very much, Sarah, for having me. I just mentioned this project, the poetry project. I have had a couple of experience in your in your home country, Sarah, in Iran, for instance, when I was invited in Tehran in, for dinner and somebody stood up all of a sudden in the middle of the dinner and uh, told us a poem he, just, he has just written the last night, which was very emotional. I mean, it, in the first place, it was a little bit surprising for, for me that has never been witnessed a situation like that before in a, in a, in a private dinner conversation. But I was very touched. And he sat down again and um, he sat down again. And uh, as you can see, I never forgot. I'm telling you now. And um, so that was the beginning that I started to be interested in poetry. And one of the most beautiful poets in that region is Jalaluddin Rumi. And I just want to leave one of his quotes, which I really like. And in a changing world, I think it's also very well fitting where we all need to understand each other better. It's a necessity that we open our hearts for each other's differences. Love is the whole thing. We are only pieces. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It was an honor to host you on Peace Mindedly. Thank you, everyone, and Khoda Hafiz.